That was just a week ago that the Virginia Cavaliers celebrated their first ever college basketball national championship, U.S. Bank Stadium, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we welcome you in to the latest edition of the College Basketball Coast to Coast Podcast. I am your somewhat capable host, T.J. Reeves. I look forward to talking with a couple of guests today. Mark Wise will be back with me, my analyst, as part of our coverage here on this podcast on our coverage on TuneIn, as well as the ESPN-TV family of networks. Mark does a great job. He's going to have insight on the coaching carousel, in particular, straight ahead. What's going on with the hiring of Mick Cronin at UCLA? Who replaced him at Cincinnati? Uh, Also, what will St. John's do? What will LSU do? Some insight forthcoming from Mark Wise. Also with me, Matt Zimmick, cbbtoday.com. Love his insight here as part of this podcast. Matt has yet to give us some thoughts on the College Basketball Coast to Coast podcast about the Virginia win, how valiant Texas Tech was, and uh, and what the feelings are about the magnitude of the victory for Virginia, and if, if some of it, whether or not it has been taken away, tainted somehow, um, after this is all said and done for the Cavaliers and their national championship run. So I look forward to talking with Matt about that in a few minutes. I mean, uh, right now you're kind of decompressing from everything that happened through March and those four great weekends. It's almost like an addict being forced to go cold turkey for the first week or two and getting the shakes. And, and suddenly you don't know how to, how to handle the time during the day or what to do. Uh, look, college basketball will be back soon enough, and there obviously is news off the court involving the coaching, involving the transfers. Mark will get into that a little bit. Uh, guys that put their name in for the draft and pulled them back out. I mean, for example, Duke's Trey Jones has now pulled his name back out of the draft. Guys now have the opportunity under a new rule to sign with an agent, go through the process, but take all the way until the middle of May and then come back. So this will go on for the next few weeks about who's going to go where. Uh, for the NBA draft, especially as an underclassman, and whether they come back to their school. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, just uh, I cannot say enough about what a pleasure it is every year to be part of this uh, NCAA basketball tournament, the event that it's become. It is the greatest event in sports, uh, just from the standpoint that the little guy gets the equal swing, the equal opportunity to go take on the big guy in so many times, whether you're talking about Buffalo or Liberty or uh, UC Irvine, uh, whomever it is that gets the chance, Wofford and on and on to pull off upsets. Bravo. Bravo once again to what this event has become and what that Final Four event has become. Four fan bases that descend on a region with the concerts, with the massive football stadium, three games on the weekend, uh, including a winner-take-all one-game scenario for the championship on Monday night. And no, you don't have any players during the NCAA tournament that are sitting on the bench looking at their cell phone while the game is going on, a la the Philadelphia 76ers. What an embarrassing joke for the NBA. Do not tell me now or forever that the NBA can touch the NCAA tournament. Because yes, the NBA has a postseason, best of seven, best of seven, best of seven, and if you win all three best of sevens, your reward is you've got to win another best of seven. The NCAA tournament for the drama, the one-game scenario, 40 minutes, your season on the line, nothing beats this. And uh, I think you feel the same way as I do. By the way, thank you uh, all along here for being with us, whether you found us through Spreaker.com, but also subscribe. Whenever there's a new podcast, it'll come right to you on iTunes, 
on Stitcher, however you found the show. Where podcasts are found, find us on College Basketball Coast to Coast. So, uh, here we go again in the uh, aftermath of Virginia's win, talking coaching carousel, talking about the historic impact of the Cavaliers and their victory. All of that and a lot more. Let's go. We do roll along, and he is going to help me try to sort out this latest with the coaching carousel. Love the insight from ESPN, our coverage on TuneIn. Weren't we just together in the great white north of Minneapolis, Minnesota a week ago? I believe we were, Mark Wise. Good to chat with you again. Good to chat with you, TJ. I know that we got out of town just in uh, in the nick of time because uh, I think they had a foot of snow the day after we left. I think they've had over two and a half feet since we left. We might still be there, being the Floridians that we are, if if we had been there when that all hit. So... We're glad the basketball was great. And look, I, I love the fact that you let me bother you because it's not really the off season when we still have coaching vacancies that are out there. When we left Minnesota, we weren't sure what UCLA was going to do. We now know what they have done. They've hired Cincinnati's Mick Cronin. What are your thoughts on that hire, Mark? Well, I have two thoughts. One is UCLA, when you try to evaluate the coaching carousel and who scored and who didn't and who made the best hires and who didn't, I almost put UCLA in a category all by itself because of its unique combination of tradition, expectation, what the program has been through in the last four or five years. That's one thought. The second thought is I think the UCLA program, rightly or wrongly, has looked at it as being soft, uh, especially under Steve Alford the last three or four years, a wonderful offensive team but did not get after you on the defensive end. The hiring of Mick Cronin will solve that problem. There's no question about that. From that perspective, I love the hire. Um, The question becomes, you know, can anybody – uh, succeed enough in Westwood to satisfy all the different factions that are going on, that'll be the big challenge for Mick Cronin. No doubt. And you've been around him a bunch in your coverage of the American Conference with the ESPN calling of games. Just give the audience an idea here on College Basketball Coast to Coast about dealing with him, his coaching style. What what stands out to you real quick? Well, what they do is they defend you. Uh, uh, his MO at Cincinnati was to... Um, play outstanding defense and get just a little bit or just enough offense to win games. I will say this, uh, in the last three or four years, he has loosened the reins on the offensive end, and they play a little quicker than they did, let's say, five years ago. But make no mistake, and he's going to bring that wonderful matchup zone uh, to Westwood. It's hard to go against. Uh, They will not allow you – to score in transition. And one of the things that Mick Cronin brings to the table, and I know this firsthand, they play this way and they don't mind being aggressive in that matchup zone, but they do it without fouling. And you're, you're going to say, well, that sounds kind of silly. Everybody wants to defend without fouling. No, they practice it. In practice, they have officials officiating all the time. And so it's one of the things that he has prided himself on is being able to defend without fouling his teams, do not put you at the free throw line. That's a great point there, too. One more on this, and then I want to move on to a couple of the other spots. There is obviously a lot of, uh, let's say there's been a lot of poking fun at Dan Guerrero being unable to hire uh, someone, uh, meandering through the process through four or five names. I mean, how much of a concern is that 
in terms of it makes it look like Mick Cronin was the fourth, the fifth, or the sixth choice here, and he doesn't really have any ties at all to the West and Southern California. And isn't that going to be a concern with being able to recruit players and get them in there? Again, your opinions on those, if you would. Well, no question. That's the the million-dollar question, as always, can you get players? But in this day and age of the transfer portal, um, I've got to believe that they'll be able to um, uh, continue the the run of talent that UCLA has enjoyed over the last, I don't know, 40 years uh, for the most part. So I don't know about that. I do know this. I think having watched it from the outside and evaluated it, I think Mick Cronin, um, I don't think he's concerned with being the fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth, whatever choice. (laughs) Coaching at UCLA is an iconic opportunity. And I think that's what he's looking at it as. Great point, because ultimately they're going to throw the ball up with one guy on the sideline next year at that iconic program. And you and I are in the same agreement here that it is still it is a sleeping giant if he can awaken it or somebody else can. Uh, a basketball fertile area of Southern California, tradition rich. A lot of love in that market in greater Los Angeles for that program. They used to be feared. Not anymore. Let's see. Let's see what happens with UCLA. All right. Also, since we left uh, Minnesota, uh, the whole St. John situation was playing out. Chris Mullen has resigned. Apparently, Bobby Hurley is not going to take the job at the time that we're taping this off the weekend. He's going to stay at Arizona State. They don't have a deal with anybody. Iona's Tim Cluis. Uh, is a guy that they have been talking to, but they don't have a deal yet. What Speculate with me. What is St. John's going to end up with here? It apparently is not going to be a huge name, we don't think. Well, TJ, you know, <laughs> this is one we're going to just have to wait on. Um, I, I think Clues would be an excellent choice with what he's done at Iona. I think um, it may not be the sexy hire, uh, but a lot of times, maybe the sexy hire is not the best hire. You know, when I when I start looking at different kinds of jobs, and 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 let's see where St. John's fits into this list. But I made myself an A list. The 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 pro- programs that I think hired the the best people, and when you talk about the best people, I think you're talking about proven commodities on the college level, and that's what. Uh, the head man at Iona would bring to St. John. So I'm looking at a list that includes uh, uh, Buzz, Williams, Buzz Williams going to Texas A&M is at the head of my list. Eric Musselman, what he was able to do at Nevada, I think will work well at Arkansas. Fred Hoiberg, I think this is a no-brainer, going back to the collegiate ranks, going back to Nebraska. He's a Midwest guy. And then I'm going to throw in two sleepers on one is the hire of Ron Hunter at Tulane. Mm-hmm. I think this is fantastic, mm-hmm. fantastic hire by Tulane, and I think you're going to see the, the benefits of that hire. And then another one, the last one is a little bit different also. You know, you never want to be the guy to follow an iconic legend. And Rick Bird at Belmont is iconic. Rick Bird is Belmont basketball. And yet they just went across town to get Casey Alexander. Why do I think that is a good fit? Casey Alexander, eight years at Lipscomb, has really built that program, or five years, I think, at Lipscomb, and has really built that program. But he was a longtime assistant 
at Belmont for Rick Bird. I absolutely love the hire. Yeah, and he was also a player there, too. So out of the lineage, let's, let's see what happens with that. A few more moments talking coaching carousel with Mark Wise. Again, follow him at MW Hoops. Even in the offseason, we got guys that are uh, jumping to the NBA that may be coming back. They may, they may pull back by May. We've got the coaching carousel still going on. Lots that uh, that Mark obviously weighs in about, and we love uh, having him on here on College Basketball Coast to Coast. We, we slid over, I slid over, uh, John Brannon, who we're also familiar with, the Northern Kentucky right. coach, had them back in the NCAA tournament this year, two times in the last three years, Northern Kentucky in the NCAA tournament out of the Horizon League. He took the Cincinnati job. So let's follow up on that. Your uh, your take on him sliding just a little bit north to the other program that's in that greater Cincinnati area, uh, the Ohio River, uh, UC. So Brandon now at UC, Mark. John Brandon at UC, TJ, I put in the same category as Mike Young, now the head coach at Virginia Tech, coming from Wofford. Nate Oates, the head coach at Alabama, coming from Buffalo. These are all highly successful mid-major coaches the question becomes can Brandon can Young can Oates can they get the kind of talent that is required to win in the American or the ACC or the SEC that will be the million dollar question for them and Brandon a former Alabama assistant has obviously done well that Northern Kentucky program was only eligible for the NCAA tournament about four years ago four or five years ago got him in there twice got him in the NCAA tournament uh, this year where they lost to Texas Tech. Uh, we were on the call for that one, that championship game in the Horizon League. Also on the call for the for the Ron Hunter-led Georgia State team making the NCAA tournament out of New Orleans, out of the Sun Belt, and Ron Hunter now goes to Tulane. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, uh, with that. And when one more, you frequently cover the SEC as part of your ESPN duties, SEC network duties. Uh, look, uh, I, I was not born at night nor last night. LSU making that announcement last evening at the time we're taping Sunday night, 9 p.m., that we're reinstating Will Wade as our basketball coach on the Sunday where Tiger Woods co- completes one of the epic sports moment comebacks from injury ever. And on the night where all of the Game of Thrones fans around the world are waiting for the debut of Game of Thrones on HBO, that drama series, and suddenly there's a little press release on the email box or on the internet from LSU. Oh, we've welcomed Will Wade back. Talk about a news dump. So they they silently, quietly, quietly kind of slip that in. So Mark, what's your thought here? Because my interpretation is this is not over yet. They've reinstated him, but they're waiting for the other shoe to drop if it does. That's my read. What's your read? TJ, I've said from the get-go that Will Wade will have his opportunity. Uh, I just find the timing of the whole thing quite um, curious, to say the least, because the, tr- the trial, um, th- the next trial in the FBI investigation, I think, is April 22nd. So it's right around the corner, and I know that they're fighting uh, uh, subpoenas in terms of, in terms of appearing. Uh, the defense uh, in, this, in this situation has subpoenaed. Uh, Will Wade along uh, with uh, uh, Sean Miller. And so, th- th- and, and those attorneys are fighting that. So that, that is yet to play out. Uh, what I find curious is I'm looking on Twitter today and all the reaction of my fellow analysts around the country, whether you're talking about uh, Fran Fraschilla at ESPN or Steve Lapis at CBS, I'm wa- watching what they're putting. There's a certain cynicism 
associated with him being reinstated. I think what LSU has done on a more bigger picture is they have kind of put the ball in the NCAA's court and are almost saying, okay, uh, let's, let's see what you're going to do. So I think this is part of the, this very slow, slow, drawn-out process. I don't know where it's going to end, but I tend to have the same cynicism as my fellow analysts. Yeah, and, and the obvious part here is if there is a move being made by Joe Oliva, the athletic director, by the school to fire him for cause, you're obviously operating under a game plan of, okay, we heard him out. We reinstated him. We are now waiting with everybody else. Where is proof? Where is more information? And then we will do this the right way and by the book. So I don't think the last chapter is written. I think you and and I agree on that. Will Wade may not be the coach next week or in two weeks or in May or later this summer. Sometimes that's how long it takes for these things to work out. I I just I don't believe the last chapter is written at LSU. Not right now. Not right now. We'll uh, no, we'll see. Yeah, I agree with you, and I don't know all of the legalities involved in terms of uh, what it would take, but it certainly seems to me like we are getting further from solutions than we are getting closer to them. (laughs) Well put on that. So again, the carousel is almost done spinning, save for the St. John's job, when you look at all the different guys that jump to different different programs. It's wild off of that. And the next thing now uh, is going to be uh, everybody declaring for the draft, National Signing Day coming up, everybody declaring for the draft and the NBA draft. Uh, that'll be held in June. And of course, some of these guys, and this is important, Mark, some of these guys that have declared can wait all the way up until the middle of May and can pull their name back out. So this is an incomplete grade as well as to what's there in terms of the underclassmen and who comes back. There are two things going on at the same time right now that will be so impactful in terms of coaches and programs filling out their rosters. Number one is exactly what you're talking about. Who's declaring for the draft? Who's, who's signing with an agent and is going to stay in the draft? Who's getting an agent but, not, but, but wants to test the waters? And I'm for any player who wants to test the waters. I think it's a great way to get uh, NBA feedback. But the other issue is the transfer portal. And, you know, even to, today, uh, I think uh, Marcus Howard announced he was coming back for, for Marquette next year. And yet today I see uh, on the transfer portal where the Hauser brothers uh, have entered the transfer portal. So from that standpoint, uh, I I think college programs and their roster management is in a state of flux that we have never seen the like stuff before. Yep, there are players all over the place. Are they coming back from the NBA? Are they going to another school for whatever the reasons are? Uh, Welcome to 2019 in the college game. And again, this guy does a great job of staying on top of it. I promise I will only trouble you again if there's huge news here in the coming in the coming weeks on college basketball coast to coast. So for now, it is a wrap on 2019, but more to come maybe. I always love chatting with you because uh, it'll be Kentucky Derby time. You're a big uh, Kentuckian on the Kentucky Derby. It's Kentucky Derby time. Go play some golf. Go to the beach. Go do whatever because it'll be basketball before we know it down the road, my friend. Well. I'm one of those persons also who looked at my Twitter last night about three minutes before nine o'clock to see the LSU release. And I'm thinking, what now I've got the game of Thrones coming on in two and a half minutes. And now I got to follow this classic news dump right before we get to game of Thrones. I love it. 
Uh, again, follow him at MW Hoops. I love Mark Wise's insight. Thank you, Coach. Thanks, TJ. Yes, I have not had the chance to get the insight, the commentary, the thoughts on the Final Four win by the Virginia Cavaliers from one Matt Zimmick. Does a great job with CBBToday.com. Love his frequent contribution to this podcast. My friend, it is now, I guess, officially the offseason, although it's really not an offseason when there's still news and coaching news and players leaving early and players looking to transfer, but... Anyway, good to have you, and and we're now a week removed from Virginia doing it officially and winning the national championship. What say you about what transpired at U.S. Bank Stadium a week ago Monday night in Minneapolis as Virginia cut the nets down? Well, one of the main uh, reactions to this title was, my God, Virginia was so conspicuously lucky and I, I, you know, as a way of to kind of minimize you know the Cavaliers' championship. May I remind people that bad calls and and breaks of various kinds uh, are part and parcel of the NCAA tournament. And so, you know, if we're going to relitigate Virginia's title, there are a lot of other championships uh, that require litigation uh, through through various prisms. I mean, the the, the, the uh, bad call here or there, like North Carolina in two thousand five got a very favorable travel call late in the Sweet 16 against Villanova. That was in the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. Do we, do we talk about that 14 <laughs> years later? You know, so really, if we're, if we're going to go through all the, all the various instances, and then just in terms of the close games, I mean, you know, in, in 1983, North Carolina State tiptoeing through all those close games uh, in many ways was a lot like this, this Virginia run, you know, sneaking through most of the time uh, rarely playing, you know, native basketball. Interestingly enough, North Carolina State's best actual performance, which was not aided by, you know, too many free throws and missed free throws by the opposing team, came against Virginia in Ralph. what was Ralph Sampson's final game for the Hoos. Uh, that was in the Elite Eight in 1983. I believe it was in Ogden, Utah. Um, so, you know, if we're going to say Virginia is lucky as a way to kind of minimize what the Cavaliers accomplished, well, you know, that's the NCAA tournament. That's a normal thing. Once in a while you get a dominant team such as 2018 Villanova or 2009 North Carolina blowtorching the field, but usually these championship runs and also Final Four runs, they require, uh, you know, something amazing happening to get teams to the, to the Final Four weekend and then to the title. So, that's really the larger perspective we need on Virginia's title run. Well, and you make a great point. Uh, you still got to make the shots. I mean, the, the shot that Mamadi Diakite made at the end of the Purdue game uh, in the Elite Eight, you got to make the shot, regardless of whatever breaks you think that there are. You, you look at, yes, the three free throws from Kyle Guy, but what about the three-pointer just before that, about 30, 20, 30 seconds just before that out of the right corner? You, you look at late... Uh, in regulation against Texas Tech, uh, the three that DeAndre Hunter makes, almost the same spot in the right corner in front of the Virginia bench. You also have to to uh, say that you've got to make key shots and big shots in the big moments, and Virginia kept doing that, Matt. Absolutely. And one other thing in, in, uh, along the lines of the, the margins involved here, you know, it, it, it somehow became a talking point that Texas Tech got most of the calls 
late against Virginia. Now, I, I will say that in terms of the severity of mistakes made by officials late in that game, specifically the non-trip of Kyle Guy, you know, obviously he wasn't tripped by anyone on Texas Tech, and also the fact that Davide Moretti was fouled by Kyle Guy before the ball went out of bounds and before replay uh, you know, revert, reversed the ruling to give Virginia the ball. And by the way, just to spend a second on that, that whole notion of being able to replay so that a ball, you know, rolls off a player's pinky when it's being knocked away by the defender, that needs to be a new rule. That if a defender knocks the ball away, it, it automatic the ball automatically goes back to the offense. The rule should be if a player, if an offensive player doesn't intervene in a play, you know, if the ball is just kind of peeled off his hand like that, it should stay with the offense. The ball would need to bounce loose, and the offensive player would then need to hit the ball with another body part, the foot, the knee, something, for the ball to go to the defense. But on a larger level, huh. you know, people aren't talking about – Matt Mooney hit like an eight-footer in the lane to give Texas Tech uh, a lead. I believe it was in overtime. He got trapped with the ball in the lane, and he was in the lane for like five seconds, at least four and a half, and he didn't get called for that, and no one's mentioning that. In a a very similar way, people were on semifinal Saturday, you know, everybody was talking about the missed double dribble on Ty Jerome, which was a correct call. People didn't talk about the fact that in the Texas Tech-Michigan State semifinal, Texas Tech committed a 10-second violation before Jarrett Culver hit that three-pointer just inside the final minute. He was not fully over the mid-court line. You need your whole body to cross in possession of the ball. One of his feet was behind the mid-court line with 20 seconds left on the shot clock. No one talked about it. Right. You know, so there has been very selective outrage in terms of calls that favored Virginia. And, you know, I, I think that part of this is that, you know, the Virginia is boring and Virginia is bad for college basketball, which was a huge drumbeat on the Sunday before the national title game for members of the national media. I think people are, were so into that narrative that the coverage of calls surrounding the Final Four uh, was the focus was on how they benefited Virginia, but there were calls that benefited other teams, including Texas Tech. So we need to keep that in perspective as we leave the Final Four. I love the perspective of the refs don't beat you. I mean, uh, look, you got to make shots, you got to make plays, you got to overcome. And what you're talking about is Texas Tech made enough shots in addition to whatever break they might or might not have gotten. Virginia made enough shots besides whatever break they might or might not have gotten. And in the end, you can't take away from what Virginia did. So one more time, because now it has happened, we haven't talked to you since it happened, put this in perspective uh, in the time capsule, etc. When you tell the story of losing to a 16 seed, as Virginia did a year ago, you got to tell the rest of the story. They came back the next year. They won the national championship, Matt. It, it's, again, something that we've joked time and again. Hollywood rejects the script because they've seen it too many times. But it just happened in real life in Minnesota, didn't it? Well, yes, and so here's the thing. On, on Twitter, in the aftermath of Virginia's title, a lot of people were saying, oh, come on, this is not some epic comeback of any kind. You know, it's not this amazing tale of redemption. Well, in the sense that Virginia was a great team in 2018 and was a number one seed, uh, you know, and won a, a whole lot of ball games and was basically the same team 
next year with a few specific improvements, such as Clark at point guard, who, of course, made one of the most famous passes in NCAA tournament history in the Purdue game at the very end. You know, so people are saying, come on, don't oversell this. This is not a turnaround. Virginia was great last year. But we need to realize it wasn't the whole season. It was the NCAA tournament, which for the casual sports fan is the season in college basketball. You know, so the, the NCAA tournament, we know this, it, it defines coaches, whether that's fair or not, it does define them. It defines programs. Do you make the final four? Do you win a national title? We know that this gives disproportionate influence in our historical recollections and also our historical analysis and measurements. For example, Indiana has five national titles, but hasn't done a darn thing over the past 26 seasons with the exception of that one fluky aberrational run to the title game as a five seed in 2002. But we still regard Indiana, and rightly, I would think, as a, as a big deal because it has five national titles. That's as many as Duke has. So national championships, Final Fours, they write the story. So when you do go from losing to a 16 and then you win the national title, that is a big turnaround. So it's not Cinderella. I, I would right. agree with the critics in that regard. It's not a Cinderella story, but it's like imagine the Buffalo Bills <laughs> winning the Super Bowl, you know, in the in that fifth year after their four straight. That's losses. a great point. That's that's, that's what this point. is like. Yes. So it's not Cinderella, point. but it is going from being a national punching bag, which Virginia was for a whole year and then making this response. So that's what it is. And so people being critical of Virginia and trying to nitpick, hey, that's the turnaround. So Jim Nance wasn't wrong when he said it's the all-time turnaround title. It's that turnaround in terms of public perception going from humiliation and embarrassment to triumph. That's the turnaround. It doesn't have to be dressed in Cinderella clothing, but it is a profound turnaround. This guy's profound. Follow him at Matt Zimek, Z-E-M-E-K. Writes on College Basketball Today's website, cbbtoday.com. He also joins us here as part of the College Basketball Coast to Coast podcast. And a reminder, subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts, however you found this one through Spreaker.com, etc., because it comes automatically to you. And again, Matt's a great follow uh, for all things college sports, in particular college basketball, that we love him for his insight. All right, so I spent time at length talking with Mark Wise about the coaching carousel before we brought you on. So I'll put the buffet, as I like to say, in front of you. Pick off of that buffet since coming off of Final Four weekend. Uh, what do you like here? What what stands out? What, what do you want to bring up and illuminate? Go ahead. Well, uh, a, few, a few things come up, and I think the biggest question and, and my biggest point on the coaching carousel is not so much any single job, but the larger point that we, we always need to be aware of what a job is or what a job is supposed to be. Like, for example, what is the Arkansas job? You know, so what, what should an Arkansas fan or an Arkansas athletic director, such as Hunter Juracek, expect out of Arkansas basketball? And so whenever you evaluate a job, you need to hire a coach who can deliver the standard of performance you expect out of the program. So, you know, with that, that should be the litmus test. And I think another really interesting example is Cincinnati. You know, Mick Cronin regularly got that program to the NCAA tournament, regularly won one NCAA tournament game per season. 
but very, very rarely made the Sweet 16. And so to me, to me, that seems like underachievement. In many ways, Mick Cronin for the last decade or so at Cincinnati reminds me of Mark Few from 2007 through 2014 at Gonzaga. Pretty much the same track record over that eight-season span. And then, you know, and finally in 2015, Few got Gonzaga to the Elite Eight, where it lost to Duke in Houston. And then Gonzaga has existed on a consistently higher plane since then and has made three Elite Eights, made its first Final Four, made its first national title game. So, you know, when, when I think of the kind of coach Cincinnati should be hiring and it hired John Brandon out of Northern Kentucky, who, for all we know, you know, could crush it on the re- recruiting trail because of his familiarity with that part of the country. Maybe it'll work out. But I think Cincinnati is a big-time job, and I think it's a job where Mick Cronin underachieved. So that would guide my thought process regarding Cincinnati. And also Arkansas taking Eric Musselman, who had this very talented veteran Nevada team this past season, guided it to a seven seed, which was the same seed Wofford got and was a seed notch lower than what Buffalo got. To me, that was very underwhelming. And I thought Florida would beat Nevada, and and that's exactly what happened. Uh, Nevada never really made the fundamental adjustment of playing well in first halves. It was a terrible first half team all season long, going back to late November. So Eric Musselman to Arkansas is very underwhelming for me, and it it just reinforces – I think Arkansas should be a sweet 16 program. And so do I think that Eric Musselman is going to make Arkansas a regular sweet 16 program? I can see him making one just as he made a sweet 16 at Nevada, but is he going to regularly live up to that standard? I I, I am a skeptic at this point. So uh, I'm, I'm surprised that certain ADs through their hires, and I'm looking at Arkansas and Cincinnati in particular, ADs seem to undersell or undervalue their program and what the ceiling should be there. But that's something that every fan at every program should always reevaluate each year. What kind of program are we? What kind of job is this? What should our regular expectation be? Not just, uh, you know, in one or two seasons, but on like five or 10 years uh, stretches of time. So along those lines, uh, Cronin now at UCLA, and you mentioned underachievement. Uh, how? I mean, I guess the way that I'll put it to you, how long is the leash here? He's going to get a year. Is he going to get two years to be dramatically better, i.e. they're in the NCAA tournament, they're winning games for UCLA? What do you think about that one real quick? Well, I think that, you know, Cronin has to make the NCAA tournament right away. You know, you're not supposed to need a grace period at UCLA if we're talking about getting into the NCAA tournament. If we're talking about, you know, Elite Eight Final Four, yeah, he'll he'll get plenty of time to do that as long as he does make the NCAA tournament in one of his first two seasons. I think that if he doesn't make the NCAAs in either of his first two seasons, if we get to that scenario, and I doubt it, I think he will get UCLA to the dance in one of his first two seasons. But if we tackle the hypothetical that he doesn't, well, that, that could be a problem for him. So uh, I think you, you don't get much of a leash at UCLA in terms of making the NCAA tournament, but, you, but he will be given time to make the Elite Eight and Final Four as long as he gets UCLA back to the NCAA tournament very quickly. Very odd situation because, again, it's no secret he's the fourth, fifth, sixth candidate, whatever. No ties to that area. Let's see. Let's see how it works. Again, it is UCLA. Worth, worth mentioning. Worth mentioning. You know, he he 
very, very nearly took the UNLV job a few years ago, but the AD at the time for, for Vegas didn't get him to sign on the dotted line when he was at the negotiating table. He flew home to Cincinnati, slept on it, and just like Joe Paterno with the New England Patriots in 1973, changed his mind after he woke up the next day. So he, Cronin had a, a, an itch to scratch out west, and it could have been Vegas, but it turned out to be UCLA. So not extraordinarily surprising given his UNLV uh, flirtation. This is what I love about Matt Zimmick breaking out a Joe Paterno New England Patriot 1973 reference for historical uh, perspective. Uh, I think maybe he just wanted to try to coach John Capaletti again. I think, I think wasn't Capaletti with the Patriots, something like that, after he won the Heisman at Penn State? Maybe that's what it was. Scratch that itch uh, all those 50 years ago with the late Joe Pa. There you uh, go. Um, uh, who knows? All right, and so who knows on the carousel? It's it's going to stop soon, we think. The, uh, the St. John's job and whatever happens there, as we were talking about with Mark, and what happens with LSU. Just real quick, Matt, before we go, I give you the same chance to have an opinion. I don't believe the last chapter is written. I still think LSU may very well fire Will Wade for cause. We are still in the middle of this process. So, uh, again, project for me. I, I don't know that LSU is not going to have an opening here in a few weeks. I don't know either. I'd be lying to you if I had a certain, you know, very clear-cut feel for this situation. And we have to also consider Arizona and Sean Miller in a similar basket. You know, that is not a fully resolved situation. And there's obviously a lot of internal politics with the Arizona board of regents. You know, these are, these are not settled situations. And so uh, while I would not be surprised if Wade survives this, you know, because we're all cynics, or at least most of us are cynics about coaches in these kinds of situations. Uh, I, I really, you know, could see any of several possible outcomes and we, we just have to wait and see how the internals, and, and any of the other uh, details of the, these investigations uh, unfold. Yep, the ugly side of what's going on here with college basketball. So uh, we'll wait to see how it all plays out. Again, read him at cbbtoday.com. Follow Matt Zimmick on Twitter at Matt Zimmick, Z-E-M-E-K. I always love getting to chat with you. Promise me that if we have more news that warrants here in the air quotes offseason, that we get to hop on again on the College Basketball Coast to Coast podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, TJ. I'll be here. And that will do it on this edition of College Basketball Coast to Coast. I thank Matt Zimmick for joining me again. Read him at cbbtoday.com. Also, Mark Wise uh, as well for being on these uh, podcasts, these shows, and the live coverage from the Final Four all throughout March and early April. Follow him at MWHoops on Twitter. And we thank you for being with us as well. Again, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher. Find us through Spreaker.com. It is the nation's college basketball show. And whenever there's news or more developments, now that the carousel has stopped spinning, we may not have a podcast for a little bit, but if there's new developments uh, in the sport of college basketball, we'll be back soon enough. I'm TJ Reeves. Thank you for being with me on College Basketball Coast to Coast.